and welcome back to the PJ Pod. I'm Caitlin Killen, and in this learning episode, we'll be covering a class of drugs that are evolving quickly that pharmacy teams need to be aware of. BTK inhibitors are used to treat cancers caused by defective B cells such as chronic lymphocytic leukemia, B cell lymphomas, and Waldenstrom macroglobulinemia, also known as WM. B cell malignancies are relatively rare cancers. For example, there are around 3,800 cases of chronic lymphocytic leukemia and only around 400 new cases of WM in the UK every year. However, the incidence of these cancers is increasing and the treatment burden of these conditions can't be understated. BTK inhibitors, that's Bruton tyrosine kinase inhibitors, are a rapidly moving area of therapeutics. Recently developed newer generation BTK inhibitors have allowed for greater selectivity and a reduced risk of side effects. However, there are still significant toxicities and drug interactions that pharmacy teams should be aware of. So today, we're going to provide an overview of the different BTK inhibitor classes, their mechanisms of action, and any considerations for their use in practice, with a focus on WM. Thanks to our sponsor, Beijing UK, for funding this episode. Here's a little more about them. Beijing are a science-focused global biotherapeutics company committed to advancing 10 or more potential cancer medicines into clinical testing per year for the next five years. Beijing has organized its manufacturing, research and medicines development in a way that allows the company to make more cancer medicines affordable and accessible to more patients around the world, including in the 29 least developed countries. In the UK, Beijing have a commitment to be a partner in science and education with healthcare providers and patient organisations, as well as to deliver world-class cancer medicines for patients. The content of this episode has been independently created by the PJ. Here's the episode. I think when the initial diagnosis is made, it's pretty scary, you know, oh, you've got blood cancer and you've got a really rare blood cancer and not many people know very much about it and it isn't curable. It can be treated and you can live really well with it. So that's got a lot to get your head around. This is Harriet Scorer, a patient living with WM, and we thought we'd start this episode with her experience of living with the disease and what BTK inhibitors have meant for her treatment. For me, it's a bit of a no-brainer if you're offered chemotherapy or um, a BTKI. So uh, not everybody feels that. I know some people feel they'd rather have the chemo and be done and not carry on with daily treatment. But for me, taking BTKI was really easy. I got up in the morning, I took the tablet. Having said that, all medicines have side effects. If you look at the patient information leaflet, um, there's a really, really long list, which is quite terrifying. But obviously, most people don't get um, all of those symptoms, of course, and most are manageable. But actually, for everybody, it's a fairly long journey and something somehow you've got to get used to living with. And we all have different ways of coping with that. Harriet brings a unique perspective to the patient experience of these treatments, given her long journey living with WM and the fact that she's a doctor. We'll hear more from her later, but first, I wanted to reach out to two expert clinicians involved in treating patients with WM to learn more about BTK inhibitors and their impact on patient care. 
Charlie Dessar, who is a consultant haematologist and clinical lead for the University College London Hospital Centre for WM, told me where these treatments first came about. The first BTK inhibitor to be discovered or developed was ibrutinib. And I believe that was actually developed in the rheumatological setting. But it was soon moved on to the B-cell malignancy setting to see whether it would be effective in those diseases. And the first trial was reported back in 2010, or started in 2010, and then a published in 2012. The reason people were wondering if these drugs might work in B-cell malignancies like WM was because of our understanding of the genes involved. Here's Jamal Qatari, a consultant haematologist based in Oxford, who walked me through the early development of treatments for WM. It became clear probably about 12 years ago when the first descriptions of the mid-88 L265P mutation were described in Waldenstrom's uh, by Steve Trion and his colleagues in, in Boston. And it was clear that mutated uh, mid-88 was very important in the cellular machinery and BTK, brutin tyrosine kinase inhibitor, was very much part of the machinery that when you had this type of mutation in Waldenstrom's, you got activation of BTK, which then led to activation of further downstream enzymes that basically led to survival of the Waldenstrom's cells. So understanding that cellular machinery made it clear that there were a number of potential actionable targets for the treatment of Waldenstrom's and that BTK would be a very good one to look at. Now Waldenstrom's is a rare disease compared to CLL. Um, So we we learned from CLL and uh, ibrutinib was the first BTK inhibitor developed, a a covalent BTK inhibitor. uh, And it was natural that understanding the cellular machinery better, that ibrutinib would be the first BTK inhibitor that was looked at uh, in Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia. Shirley then told me a bit more about how these drugs were developed to treat B-cell malignancies. Uh, The signalling cascade involves many kinases, including bruton tyrosine kinase. Um, And BTK was first identified as a key mediator in BCR signalling, and clearly contributes to the innate immune system, um, including dendritic cells and macrophages, but also plays a crucial role in the pathogenesis of B-cell malignancies, including Waldenstrom, CLL, mantle cell lymphoma, and marginal zone lymphoma. So the central role of BTK activation in BCR signaling does provide a strong biological rationale for BTK inhibition. And and that is why it's been developed as an effective uh, therapeutic uh, intervention. So if we suppress BCR signaling, this leads to reduced B cell proliferation and survival. So that is the rationale for the, the approach. Throughout this past decade, we're now seeing the second generation of these drugs become approved for use in WM. Ibrutinib was the original um, covalent BTK inhibitor. Um, and it's important to understand that the newest generation of BTK inhibitors are non-covalent BTK inhibitors. So the, the three covalent BTK inhibitors that have been looked at in Waldenstrom's, I've already mentioned, ibrutinib, zanibrutinib and acalibrutinib, um, and non-covalent BTK inhibitors such as nemtibrutinib and pirtibrutinib don't have license in, in Waldenstrom's. 
But in terms of covalent BTK inhibitors, the first generation BTK inhibitor was ibrutinib and more selective covalent BTK inhibitors with better toxicity profiles, less off-target effects, uh, less cardiac toxicity, less hypertension, for example, uh, are, are so-called the second generation covalent BTK inhibitors such as acalabrutinib and xanabrutinib. Xanabrutinib is the only BTK inhibitor recommended by NICE to treat WM in England, while both ibrutinib and xanabrutinib are recommended in Scotland. These are second-line therapies, so patients need to have first had a combination of chemotherapy or be unsuitable for chemotherapy to receive them. But what actually needs to be considered when BTK inhibitors are initiated? Waldenstrom's is a disease of the elderly. The median age of diagnosis is 70, so a number of our patients will have comorbidities and when understanding any treatment and whether you can give a treatment, it's how do, you know, what are the comorbidities of the patient? Uh, what is their preference? What do you need the treatment to do in terms of the disease situation that they're in? It's a balancing act, making sure that you give the right treatment to the right patient at the right time. The initiation of treatment, you know, there's a lot to tell patients. First of all, it is a long-term continuous oral therapy rather than a time-limited duration of treatment. So on the one hand, I, I sort of say that it's a bit like treating diabetes or hypertension. You know, you'll be on this tablet for life, in inverted commas. Uh, in reality, it's as long as it's, it works. As Shirley alludes to there, there's a chance of patients developing resistance to BTK inhibitors and relapsing. When this happens, they'll have to try an alternative treatment, whether this is another BTK inhibitor or a different therapy. And this needs to be communicated sensitively. Clearly, one wants to communicate in a hopeful way because this is a, a novel and extremely effective group of therapies. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Communicating the potential for future resistance is, is a tricky one. It's important, I think, to get a balance. Uh, to begin with, we talk more about the, the benefits, the rationale of the treatment, and also the potential side effects that people need to look out for so that we can adjust the dose, uh, prevent problems where we can. Um, in due course, as they go through the treatment, then if there is a slippage of response or intolerance, you know, we then introduce the fact that, yes, of course, things can change with time. But the same goes for other treatments as well in, 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 in cancers. This is where pharmacists can play a crucial role. So our, our pharmacists, our cancer pharmacists, are absolutely crucial cogs in ensuring that patients are safely treated with all sorts of chemotherapy, including oral agents such as BTK inhibitors. So in our practice in Oxford, we have an oral education clinic whereby any patient started on oral chemotherapy uh, or an oral agent such as uh, xanabrutinib or ibrutinib would have a counselling session from a pharmacist uh, and that's really important for you know a number of reasons uh, it really helps the patient understand you know what time of day should I take my medication what happens if I miss a dose uh, are there any things that I should avoid? What are the drug interactions? So often, you know, as clinicians, we would love to go into that deep detail in a clinic appointment, but often we don't have the time. So in Oxford, we 
we have uh, publishable uh, protocols for all chemotherapies, including BTK inhibitors, which are actually freely available to anyone in the world, actually. And, and we know that people around the world actually look at our protocols and we write these together with our pharmacists. There's obviously a role for specialist pharmacists in communicating with patients and helping them understand their medicines. However, owing to the average age of diagnosis and the comorbidities these patients may have, pharmacists across sectors will likely encounter these patients. Jaimal and Shirley talked me through some of the toxicities and side effects that pharmacists should be aware of. It potentially is very difficult to safely give ibrutinib in patients who have uncontrolled cardiac disease because ibrutinib certainly has a very significant signal of atrial fibrillation with maybe 20% of patients getting atrial fibrillation, a similar number getting hypertension and other important toxicities of ibrutinib include 15 to 20% of people getting arthritis or arthralgia with uh, joint pain and swelling. There are also concerns around bleeding and the practical considerations that go along with this. So I explained that it's akin to taking aspirin. And so, you know, the importance of pausing the treatment ahead of any invasive procedures, uh, such as dental work, operations. We tend to um, advise different durations of pausing depending on the, the invasiveness of the procedure. So it very much is a case-by-case discussion. Um, Along with that, we encourage patients to tell their, whichever doctor is going to do or dentist is going to do something, to reach out to us uh, for advice because we can give more dedicated advice for that particular patient. And also in the event of bruising or bleeding, uh, to report that to us because uh, we can take action according to, you know, what is actually happening. This, of course, has implications for patients in need of anticoagulation. So, for example, if someone has recently had a, a stent put into their coronary artery, this, you know, they they this is they man they are mandated to have um, an antiplatelet agent or maybe dual antiplatelet agents plus or minus an anticoagulant. So again, we would need to speak very carefully to you know the cardiologists involved so that we can weigh up the pros and cons of, of, you know, how to manage this. Uh, There are some situations in WM, for example, where we might be able to hold off on commencing the treatment for a few weeks because the change in the disease may not be that rapid, it being a chronic disease. Certainly within within the NICE framework, you cannot stop the drug for more than six weeks. uh, Otherwise, you have to apply for a particular exemption. But from the oncological perspective, in terms of controlling the disease, that's undesirable anyway, because you lose, you lose control. There's also an increased risk of infection, and considerations for how this should be managed are important, as Jaimal and Shirley explain. I think it's also important to say any covalent BTK inhibitors, you know, uh, uh, any treatment really in Waldenstrom's, uh, there is a, a risk of infection. Um, and understanding the risks of infection, counselling patients to uh, carefully take um, prophylactic antibiotics, which we uh, often use, uh, how to report uh, infectious symptoms, promptly treating infection when it comes along, uh, ensures that hopefully people don't get significant infections or end up in hospital. We obviously mention the broad side effect of of immunosuppression, which will happen um, with these drugs, and in particular, certain uh, cytopenias, so for example, xanabrutinib, 
is more likely to cause neutropenia than ibrutinib. Uh, that was something found in, in clinical trials and has been borne out in my own experience. So, uh, you know, a low neutrophil count, which can cause difficult problems with neutropenic sepsis, if not adequately seen and treated. So agents such as filgrastim may be used in certain patients, especially older patients, to try and support the blood count to prevent neutropenia. As a matter of course, we will use anti-PCP treatment uh, or prophylaxis with uh, cotrimoxazole. Failing that, or for any reason, we would tend to give azithromycin as a prophylactic. We also give acyclovir um, for anti-herpes virus prophylaxis throughout the course of treatment. But if someone develops an opportunistic infection, then, you know, we treat that very seriously. We look for evidence of hypogammaglobulinemia because that often happens in these patients, we may consider replacing an intravenous immunoglobulin or subcut immunoglobulin if patients um, are eligible uh, according to NHS criteria. And the other thing we look for is invasive fungal infections. So patients who are multiply treated with prior chemotherapy and then are on um, BTK inhibitors are more prone to invasive fungal infections. So we do look for these actively, especially if patients come into hospital with fevers or symptoms that suggest some infection that's not readily uh, detectable. Jamal also provided some insight into the differences between ibrutinib and xanabrutinib when it comes to lower grade toxicities. But the main difference was in the toxicity profiles uh, with significantly less cardiac toxicity with uh, xanabrutinib compared to ibrutinib and significantly less hypertension uh, and also diarrhea. And this is um, very useful for an oral agent where potentially patients are going to stay on treatment for over five years. You know, the average length of time that people might stay on uh, a covalent BTK inhibitor for Waldenstrom's, you know, maybe between five to seven years. So low-grade toxicity of any type for that length of time is, is really not acceptable. There are also other low-grade toxicities to be aware of that may have significant impact on patients. Skin rashes can be quite common as well, um, and also problems with nails. Uh, patients often have brittle nails, which um, may sound fairly innocuous, but if you are living with this long-term, it can be very troublesome, and cracked nails can become painful or infected. So there are a variety of side effects caused by BTK inhibitors, and some may be more serious than others. But what are the red flag symptoms that pharmacists need to be aware of? So I think very significant side effects of covalent BTK inhibitors are, are cardiac, so atrial fibrillation, irregular heartbeat. So sometimes patients may feel uh, you know, palpitations or dizziness or the feeling of not feeling quite right. Uh, certainly, I think if you know a clinician or if a pharmacist sees a patient who appears to be you know, in atrial fibrillation on a covalent BTK inhibitor, they should liaise with the uh, clinician who's who's prescribed it. And often we will think about discussing with our cardiology colleagues, often having to stop the drug, work out where we are from a cardiac perspective and, you, you know, the relationship between cardiologist, hematology pharmacist and uh, uh, hematology clinician is very important. And it's very important that we're made aware of significant bleeding quickly. Uh, but it should be said that most bleeding 
on ibrutinib, zanibrutinib is minor, the, the odds of having a significant or life-threatening bleed is low. As well as side effect management, pharmacists should be aware of drug interactions and adjustments. So with, with covalent BTK inhibitors, uh, any agents that affect the uh, cytochrome P450, either in inducing or in inhibiting, uh, can lead to significant variations in concentrations of uh, covalent BTK inhibitors, including, you know, such as ibrutinib and, and danibrutinib. And I think it's very important that if patients are on these sorts of agents, they consult the SPC uh, of the drug, which is very clear in highlighting whether specific drugs should be avoided uh, or if they can't be avoided what dose of ibrutinib or zanibrutinib the patient should be started at. I think the reference information is always very important uh, for example also thinking about hepatic impairment, renal impairment, you know what doses do you use, is it safe to give, how, you, how one should monitor it. Shirley then told me more about some of the specific interactions pharmacists should look out for. Quite relevant in the setting of hematological malignancies include drugs like itraconazole, fluconazole, clarithromycin. These CYP3A inhibitors increase the bioavailability of uh, BTK inhibitors, so one has to dose adjust accordingly. And this is where pharmacists are crucial uh, to uh, helping clinicians get this right. Uh, rifampicin is a CYP3A inducer and this will then reduce the bioavailability of zanibrutinib. Uh, again, adjustment is important, alternative treatments may be needed. Probably not used that often now, but outside of specialist settings, but midazolam is a CYP3A sub substrate and its uh, bioavailability is reduced by the administration of zanibrutinib. Likewise, omeprazole um, and um, you know digoxin can also be affected by zanibrutinib uh, or ibrutinib uh, dosing and that's certainly where I have found the input of pharma pharmacists uh, invaluable um, because their attention to detail is what really counts in this setting. There are clearly lots of factors to be aware of when patients are using these medications Jamal also outlined some of the supportive measures that can be taken to help people get the best out of their medication regimens. So there are a number of tricks that can be used. So, for example, you know, diarrhea may be a problem for people on ibrutinib and, and, and zanibrutinib. Um, it tends to be a bit worse with ibrutinib. You rule out infection and loperamide can be very effective for that. Uh, in terms of other side effects that people can get that can be managed, the, the arthritis and arthralgia is really mainly an issue with ibrutinib we don't tend to see it with zanu um, but low dose steroids for example can be helpful uh, you know short courses of non-steroidal antibiotics so there are lots of tricks and supportive care measures that can be done to try and minimize the, the side effects um, and optimize quality of life. Jamal also told me about a rather unexpected food that could help some patients. Some people get um, cramps on these agents uh, uh, as well. Not not so common, but can go with the arthritis. Uh, you know, anecdotally, people sometimes find that you know pickled foods can help with this, or sometimes quinine. Even when supportive care is optimised, there might be scenarios when a BTK inhibitor needs to be withheld. Shirley explained some important things that may need to be considered in these cases. If a BTK inhibitor is paused for whatever reason, such as 
imminent surgery or some other procedure, there can often be a vigorous withdrawal syndrome uh, in which patients can have fevers and rigors and sweats, something very much resembling sepsis, actually. Um, and this, unless one is aware of this, uh, this can lead to all kinds of um, panic, frankly, um, because patients are then admitted, treated for sepsis potentially, which I think is important because, of course, they are prone to sepsis. Finally, I asked Shirley and Jaima whether there was any extra support pharmacists could provide patients with. Best practice in situations where patients are getting oral therapies often for many years is about giving patients time every time they see you or you speak to them on the telephone. A lot of patients on these agents who are stable for many years often only have a phone call every three months. So I think it's about being systematic about assessing whether there are any side effects and thinking, can I ameliorate this with a change in supportive care? Is the patient on the right supportive care for infections, for neutropenia, for diarrhea, for whatever it is? And if they are, do I need to reduce the dose? Do I need to do something else? So I think, yeah, giving out leaflets and, and making sure people have the, the information they need. And, and I guess reinforcing information at each visit because there's a lot of information for patients to take on board and just reinforcing that with each visit and, and keeping an open door for questions is also important. For WM there is a specific charity called WM UK which is found at wm.org.uk. There is also an advice line for patients and people can join social media groups so that they can learn from one another and also join support groups. At the beginning of the episode, we heard from patient Harriet Scorer, who's been through many different treatments since being diagnosed with WM over 20 years ago, including multiple rounds of chemotherapy and a stem cell transplant before starting BTK inhibitors. Unfortunately, as described by Shirley, Harriet became resistant to the BTK inhibitor that she was receiving and is now accessing an alternative therapy through a clinical trial. So I started on ibrutinib and I took ibrutinib from 2019 until a month ago. Unfortunately, I've become resistant to ibrutinib, so I've stopped that and I've now entered a clinical trial on nemtibrutinib and that's where I am today. And there are a lot of medicines going into clinical trials. So there's great hope for us with Waldenstrom's. But I would say to anybody thinking about going into a clinical trial, this needs a lot of consideration and you need a lot of discussion with the team that treats you. You need to understand all the implications of that and understand if it's the right thing. While Harriet's experience on these drugs hasn't been straightforward, I was keen to hear her perspective on the impact these medicines have had on patients like herself. I think the introduction of BTKIs and their licensing has made a significant difference to the management of Waldenstrom's. Before they arrived, there was basically chemotherapy and then possibly a different chemotherapy agent and nothing else. So they're licensed now for use once one line of chemotherapy has failed. 
obviously it's entirely the decision of the consultant, maybe their multidisciplinary team, the pharmacist, and very much the individual as to whether another course of chemotherapy is appropriate or whether starting on a BTKI is the answer. And that will be different for every individual. So I wouldn't say that everybody goes on to a BTKI having had a course of chemotherapy and relapsed. But clearly the numbers have hugely improved. As our experts have already outlined, there are a number of BTK inhibitor side effects. Harriet told me about some that she experienced herself. I did have some side effects from the abrutinib. I was warned that some of them could be pretty serious, diarrhoea, cardiac arrhythmias. I didn't experience either of those. So my side effects were more sort of long-term and a bit of a niggle. One thing that was quite significant that I think a lot of people experience is increased bleeding and bruising. And over time, I got very brittle nails and dry skin and a sort of weird myalgia. And then I started getting weird muscle tears, like hamstring tears. Now, it could have been coincidental, but since I've stopped taking the Brutinib, they've stopped. Reflecting on these side effects, Harriet had some advice for patients to think about before starting BTK inhibitors. I just really urge any patients who start these medications that they make a note of what's happening to them that if they're not sure, they contact the centre that's looking after them. Maybe that's the pharmacist, maybe it's their clinical nurse specialist, because sometimes it's quite difficult to unravel what's happening in your life, whether it's taking the BTKI, whether you've got um, a comorbidity and there's another medicine or there's an interaction which perhaps nobody knew about. I think there's actually quite a lot to think about there. Harriet also had some thoughts on the support that pharmacists can provide to patients receiving these treatments. Pharmacists can play a really helpful role in supporting patients, um, much more than just the medication side of things, which is obviously incredibly important. But sometimes patients are just worried, confused, or they don't really know where to go to work things out. So I'd ask any pharmacist uh, meeting somebody with WM that they recommend that the patient themselves, their family, their carer, look at the WM UK website. There's a huge amount of information there. I think one of the most important things for me is I don't want to be medicalised by the condition. Now, I recognise from time to time I've got to have treatment, um, and in chemotherapy times, I had to accept that. But the rest of the time, I just want to get on with my life um, as best I can. I think that's a good stopping point for today's episode. I want to thank Harriet for guiding us through her experience. And of course, a big thank you to our experts, Shirley and Jaimal. We'll include links to WMUK and any other relevant resources in the show notes. And finally, thanks again to Beijing UK for supporting this episode. Please do follow us on whatever podcast platform you use and let us know what you thought of this episode on social media using the hashtag PJPod. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>